It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. Many of our guests are people who have been brought to my attention and to our attention because of listeners who have taken the time to email me at preachers at christiancentury.org to let me know of a good person to talk to. So if you know of an interesting preacher and you'd like to hear them interviewed and they might be up for it, please do send me their name and contact information and I'll be sure to reach out to them. This week, I'm glad to speak with Nadia Boltz-Weber. Nadia is a widely acclaimed author and is the pastor of the House of All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. We talk about her latest book, Accidental Saints, as well as what it's like to be a preacher who's in 12-step recovery and the sort of unique perspective that folks who are in 12-step programs bring into the pulpit and into the faith. If you've read Nadia's books, you know she's a very funny and honest person, and certainly both of those traits come shining through in this fun interview with her. Here she is, Nadia Boltz-Weber. Okay, so let's just jump right in. There is a... Uh... A passage in Accidental Saints where you talk about answering a question that you were asked about what it is in your preaching that resonates with the people at um, House of All Sinners and Saints. And, and you write this, that almost all of them said they love that their preacher is so obviously preaching to herself and just allowing them to overhear it. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, well... Um... It's actually accurate. I mean, I um, the only way I know how to get to what I end up getting to in my sermons is to dig really deeply into what is my own brokenness, like how is my own sin revealed in this text, and then like what what is a true word of good news to me? Not not vapid slogans. You know, not like just theological nonsense, you know, uh, phrases, but like what, what feels to me as a, somebody who struggles to be actually good news. And that's, I mean, I sort of include myself in the process as well as my parishioners when I'm going through that each week that I preach. Um, and and obvi- like if I'm going to call someone out, like in my, pre- I'm not like a quote prophetic preacher who's like calling out this and calling out like if I'm calling someone out in my preaching pretty much it's always going to be me one of the things I I noticed in the book that I loved was a a passage where you're talking about the aftermath of of George Zimmerman and that murder and you say that you felt a massive amount of indignation and anger and rage over that racist killing and yet you you compared those feelings that you had to feasting on junk food and that it wasn't until you got through the sugar rush of your own self-righteous indignation and were able to also reckon with the ways in which you yourself benefit from the system that results in that kind of violence. Yeah, exactly. Is that a typical move for you to, to, to indict yourself even as you're indicting whatever needs to be indicted? Yeah, always. Is pretty much always. Yeah, I'm like a one-trick pony. I mean, it, but but legitimately, it's just how I think, and I think, and that's what will ultimately give me real hope, um, because that that self-righteous stuff, 
there's a place for it and it can sometimes fuel some work that needs to get done in the world and that's okay but um theologically um that's not where my hope is i mean you know that self-righteous you know sort of you know all the stuff online i call outrage porn you know all that stuff is like it feels good for a minute but only in the way that like peeing your pants feels warm for a minute <laughs> do you think that 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 the main line is kind of peeing its pants all the time then i mean that yeah, sort of I mean, moralizing left leaning no oh, heck yeah yeah totally totally yeah there's um i see very little room for grace in any of that now um are there are there absolute um injustices that need to be addressed in our society and that we cannot shirk away from yeah absolutely but the way i see the discourse going the ideology around that there's almost never any space for any kind of grace for ourselves or other people and um and when when ideology you cannot substitute ideology for the gospel Mm. like on on the right wing of the church or on the left wing of the church do you think when we do that, we up, do that. Having grown up in a pretty conservative tradition, does it allow you to see those sort of excesses on either side? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, conservative is an understatement. It was sectarian. Colorado Springs, right? Yeah, Church of Christ in Colorado Springs. Like we were taught that we were the only Christians. We were the only people going to heaven, and um, so, so that sectarian type, that really heavy ideology, and that fundamentalism. Part of me loves that kind of thinking like I love chocolate. Like I love being right and showing how everyone else is wrong. But n- that never saves me, ever. And, and, and whether it's really like fundamentalism of the right or fundamentalism of the left, I find that they're, they're both almost always lacking two things, which I can't do without in life, and that's joy and humility, like mm-hmm. you can't afford it. Like when you're so fiercely ideological, you can't afford joy because if you let down your defenses even for a minute, you know, you could end up being wrong and being right is the whole point. So joy gets a little hazy, right? So then you can't afford that. And you definitely can't afford humility. I mean, you just can't. And and I like if 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 a system or a culture doesn't allow for those things, then I I just don't want to be a part of it. How does I understand how certitude blocks humility, but how, in your thinking, how does certitude, religious certitude, exclude joy? Because um, because certitude, uh, not that ideological sort of certitude, is really kind of based in fear, in a sense. So, for instance, like when that movie Avatar came out. Oh my gosh, my like news feed on Facebook was just filled with all this outrage. You know, this is just dances with wolves and this is colonial, you know, the colonial white man saving the need. I mean, you know, all of this stuff. Like, you know, if you want to follow Slate or Salon, all their articles start with the problem with blank, right? Like, yeah. It, right? I mean, that's, that's, we love that right now. And so, like, I got it. Like, it's not that I don't lack. It's not that I lack analysis, like I understood what they were saying, but like I saw Avatar and I was like, oh my God, it it was pretty. Like it was just like so pretty to watch the floaty things. Like I was like, I am not going to pretend that I did not enjoy the beauty of that film, but you can't afford it. You know, it's like when I saw, I went to an advanced screening of Selma 
And I went home and I immediately put on Twitter, just saw an advanced screening of Selma, loved it, can't wait for the liberal Twitterverse to tell me why actually loving Selma makes me a horrible racist. And then I was like, and five, four, three, two, there it is. (laughs) It just (laughs) happened almost immediately. (laughs) I wonder too, if there's a way in which like religious certitude, it's so locked down. And to my mind, big part of experiencing joy is the way in which it blindsides you, it surprises you, as C.S. Lewis says. Joy tends to sort of creep up on one or just explode in front of you. Um, totally. But if you got totally. it all nailed down, you're right. not going to make room for it. There's no movement. I know. Yeah. Do you think, to go so, back to the the sort of almost, I mean, self-lacerating is probably too strong of a word, <laughs> but... But that insistence on honesty about your own complicity in the, mm-hmm. the evils that we deplore uh, or the ways in which one in your social circumstances benefit from them. Do you connect that to your participation in the recovery movement and the sort of sweep your own side of the street yeah. understanding? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I grew up in 12 Steps programs. I mean, I, you know, I got clean and sober when I was 22 and I'm 47. So I've spent most of my life in those rooms and the only hope you have is dependent on your capacity to be honest. And so I'm actually doing, um, I'm doing the closing keynote tomorrow night at the festival of faith and writing at Calvin. And, um, and the whole talk is about that is about, you know, vulnerability and telling the truth about ourselves and what we gain from that and why it's important and um, it's not the same as having low self-esteem or being self-hating. I'm not self-hating. I don't. I don't have self-esteem issues, um, but um, I can. I do have uh, somewhat of a capacity to, to, uh, you know, name my own bullshit. <laughs> it's, and- it's really all I have to offer people. I actually, after I I, I wrote, finished Accidental Saints, I looked at my husband. I was like, you know, I swear to God, I want to write a book where. I come off looking good in just like one chapter, not the whole book, like just one chapter. And he goes, yeah, but you know, you have so little source material to work from. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not the only one being brutally honest. <laughs> the, uh, I wonder sometimes if Christians who have experience of recovery, who are in recovery have, I'm not, but have this, I mean, I'm at total risk for romanticizing what goes on in the church basement during AA and, and NA. Huh. But I look out sometimes at my own congregation and I see the folks who I know who are in recovery, whether that's you know a recent thing for them or something that's been going on mm-hmm. for decades. And it does seem to me sometimes that they have a, I don't know, a, a, an angle on things, a, a yeah. level of sort of practical application totally. that other people are lacking. Also, you know, if you notice, the people in recovery in your congregation are just naturally of service. They look around and they see, how can I be of service? You yeah. know, because of the program they live. Like, they're really useful. <laughs> you know? And uh, they want to be of use to their fellows. That's part of the deal, you know. And they really live it. So, I mean, I, you know, my, my buddy Richard Rohr called the 12 Steps America's single yet very important contribution to human spirituality. Mm. And, uh, and I, I believe that to be true. Yeah, I think, you know, I look at the difference between what goes on in the church basement, you know, during the week and what goes on in the church sanctuary on Sunday. And I think, I think it's true that, that people are more often talking honestly about their lives, 
and connecting to each other and to God during the week in our church basements than they are on Sundays in the church sanctuary. Because, you know, a lot of times what's said in church is true, but it's seldom honest. Mm. But what's said in the basements of churches, brutally honest. That's really interesting. Stanley Hauerwas has that great line about, at its worst, church being a conspiracy of cordiality. <laughs> that's a great line. Isn't it? And I, and I do think that's that sometimes. Really good. Like, yeah, like we speak that. the truth, but we're so afraid of, of being unkind that we yeah. also carry a lot of lies. I oh, remember, yeah. We nice each other to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about the story that you tell of doing a funeral for a young man who died by suicide. Did you feel like when you were called into that situation, can you describe the hesitancy that you felt about stepping into it? Well, my hesitation really was just because I didn't have enough days off. Honestly, I think I had two or three in the whole month and you know, a stranger calls and says, well, you do a funeral. It's, you know, one of three days you're going to have off all month. And so it's always hard, you know, to balance that like quote self care, you know, that whole concept with, um, being faithful to your calling and being of service to people. So it's like, it's hard to know. And so at first I I was so tired. I was like, look, I'm, it's not my responsibility to do funerals for people I've never heard of. You know, I, I just, I can't do that. I can barely do my own job, you know, but then, when she said, oh, well, it was this, um, you know, gay guy, he had some, you know, manic depression, just a tad bit of, you know, addiction to heroin, you know, and like, and he worked in a restaurant. I mean, like everything she said about this guy, I was like, ah, oh, crap, he's like my, he's my people. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't, like, this is mine to do, you know? So, um, and then when she when she was like, no, I understand, I understand, but is there another pastor in town you think could do it? And then I was like, no. <laughs> well, and, and not say something irretrievably stupid and alienating to the people in the room? I don't know. I mean, I love my colleagues, but, you know, I'm just kind of native to that the context that this funeral was going to be in. So then it was mine to do. And it, and it was actually good for me to kind of go to renegotiate with myself what what my parish is like my parish started by being like the whole city and then it ended up being this little congregation and then it just kind of had to bump out again, you know, with that experience. What was that like to stand in a room full of grieving people in a restaurant full of grieving people? Um, Oh, I wouldn't have been anywhere else, honestly, because, um, because there's something powerful about having the opportunity to talk about Jesus, like in a way that's not, um, coercive or creepy people are generally cool with jesus right so to be able to talk about you know to kind of say look here are the kind of people jesus hung out with and when i heard about this kid billy i was like dang sounds just like the people jesus would hang out with you know and in that being a comfort and then also having been somebody who like many people have experienced suicide in my life um to say to them like all I know is, like, if if me loving my friend PJ was enough to keep him alive, he'd still be here. So, like, we, you know, the people who commit suicide are often loved very deeply by, by a lot of people, and that's not enough to keep them alive, you mm-hmm. know? And um, So, to, so to, to try and absolve 
Totally. Folks totally. Like they feel. Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. But from a personal place, like from a confessional place, not from a like, you know, I'm the clergy person, so I'm the professional dispenser of wisdom for you. You know? <laughs> it's just not my deal. I remember the first suicide funeral that I had to do. I felt so overwhelmed by the mm. I mean, there's a way in which pastorally one gets not inured to, but it's like anything else. You get accustomed to things, right? But there is mm-hmm. something about suicide that it, that is, by definition, going to rattle you. Yeah, it's disruptive um, in a really particular way. Yeah. yeah. I'm such a pastoral preacher. Like, preaching to me is a pastoral act. And so um, I, I am caring for them in my preaching. I am trying to show them how they might be in bondage in the same way I'm in bondage, and then to give them words of freedom and hope. So um, I find that people I, I, people don't have, I haven't really experienced much like pe- people being offended by my preaching in my parish or anything like that. Maybe the part of that is because of your own honesty, right? If you're, if you're yeah. unguarded and not presenting yourself as some sort of shiny ball bearing that can't be penetrated... Right. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the old saw, good visitation makes good preaching. Mm-hmm. When I got done with your book, I anticipated that I would know who you were a little more in preparation for this interview. And I did, I think. Um, but what I really came away with is feeling like I know your church. The My favorite chapter was the one about Amy and Bobby. Oh, and yes. the friendship that they had. And, and yes. you say in that chapter, it rang very true to me that, like, this is just me, but my first congregation was here in Chicago, a small neighborhood church full, like to a person full of eccentric folks. And not very yeah. many people, <laughs> 150. But it was, I mean, and I grew up in a pretty white bread northern Minnesota church. And it was, um, I couldn't figure, it was exciting but sure. exhausting. And I couldn't figure it out. Like, where are these people coming from? And, yeah, and yeah. what's connecting them? And there was a point at which you said, it was before you pointed out how absolutely holy the friendship that these two women yeah. had was. But you said, yeah. well, the people who are showing up to church on a Wednesday night for something I'm offering, they'd show up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday because... They have five, six nights of the week free. They're lonely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was the hardest. That was the hardest thing I wrote. Well, it was one of the hardest things I wrote in that book, I would say. But the most, also the most sort of beautiful and liberating. Because, um, you know, I just was reacting to this person in my parish who I felt was so socially awkward and all that stuff. And, and um, I was reacting to something a, a part of me I don't like that she reminded me of. And it wasn't until I was able to love and come to terms with the part of me I didn't like that, that she reminded me of that I was able to love and appreciate her. And now, and I do, like, I mean, it used to be when I'd see her, I'd be like, oh, he's here, you know? And then now every time I see her, I'm like, oh, Bobby's here. <laughs> I love her. Well, it's so, literally, I mean, that was a... a a very powerful move that you made in that chapter again from, because there was a risk there as even as I read it, I was mm-hmm. like, wow, she's being pretty harsh about this woman. Yeah, and then totally. you tell the story of your own teenage awkwardness and how, right. and your own yeah. right current awkwardness. Right. 
it helped me understand my react, my initial reaction and eventual, and to this day, I miss those people desperately um, mm. in my experience, because I realized after a while, who am I to sit here and like, what am I doing in the middle of all these people is the question that mm. ought to be asked, right? right I'm, I'm not right, separate right. from them. I'm one of them. Um, and that's, that's a good right. thing for preachers yeah. to realize. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing about the job is this weird symbiosis. It's like there's an emotional and spiritual symbiosis between me and my congregation. And a lot of times, if we're stuck, like if the congregation seems stuck or we're having, we keep bumping up against something or something's not working... I guarantee it's because of something that's stuck in me, you know, it's just weird. And it's like, not until I figure that out in myself, does it sort of come loose in the community? It's, it's very weird. I don't know. Have you felt yourself in the same way or on the other side of that symbiotic relationship changed by your experience (laughs) of the congregation? Oh my gosh. You have no idea. You have no idea. That's like actually someone asked me like a year or so ago, like, why are you still there? Like, cause you know, I've had interesting offers, you know, I've, I've had some interesting <laughs> offers for other jobs, which, which would have so much more status or titles or whatever. And uh, nothing has even come close to interesting me because, and I told this person, these people keep changing me. So they keep changing me in a way that I need to be changed. I just don't know where else that would happen. Like, they're teaching me, like, what size my heart can be when I didn't think it could be that size. And they're teaching me about how hard I can be to love. And they're teaching me about how to care for each other and being present. And, I mean, they've changed me, like... Look, I spent my whole life trying to be just tough as nails. Like, you can't get to me. I, I, I wouldn't show any weakness. Like, I wanted everyone to think I'm strong as hell, right? No, I, I will not show you any vulnerability. And um, that's not who they needed. And um, I met my one of my best friends, Sarah Miles, at Greenbelt. I think it was in 2009. And ever since we met, I don't think we've gone more than 10 days without speaking since the day we met. <laughs> And uh, in 2009, I, you know, the church was kind of new and I didn't know what I was doing. It might have been 2008, actually. And, uh, and I told her, I said, you know, I'm freaked out about, about even being a pastor because I, I don't have the right personality. And there's a lot of stuff that you're a lot, a lot of ways you're supposed to be that I am not that way, you know. And she goes, girl, you know what? Your people will make you into the pastor they need you to be. And I thought, well, that's weird. And, um, but that's what's happened. So these people needed a pastor who was willing to be vulnerable in their preaching. And so that, that's why that's the kind of preacher I've become. Mm-hmm. Somehow that's what happened. And it's been, it goes completely against my MO for most of my life. And yet now it's like this weird thing I'm known for. Would you uh, worry if you were to wind up in another setting? That that part of who you've become, that you love, I assume at this point, mm-hmm. would be silenced, would have to go away? I wouldn't be in another setting. I, 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 can't, I don't think I'll ever serve in a different congregation. Mm. Because um, I think any other place I'd go, they would want me to 
be something I'm not, and I'm not willing to do that. So, um, yeah, I, I really can't imagine serving another church. It's I, interesting. It's I mean, fathom. I've been the pastor at three different churches, and in each one, they do relationally, they call forward really different. I mean, it's like different tasks and chores that need to be done at different sure. churches. But there's also, to your point, there's like an identity part that they call forward that's different. I think mm. that's why it's very hard to preach well in the first couple. I mean, you can do it performatively. You can yeah, yeah, yeah. pull out yeah. my best sermons. But, sure, but sure. to really preach impactfully and in a moving right. way. Um, right, right. And it's not just because I can, that I'm having an having an insight here based on what you said. It's not just because I don't know them well enough. They don't know me well enough. We don't trust each other yet. I think that's mm-hmm. all true. But there's also a point at which I don't know what they need from me yet. Right? Yeah. You haven't had your they heart need broken me to be. yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, it's interesting just looking back at my preaching the first few years and how different it was. I mean, so different. Like, it it really was like somebody who just got out of seminary preaching, <laughs> you know? mm. like just like dogmatic was, or no, no, just like, here's some clever insights about the text, you know, or, or, and lots of theological phrases, you know, that jargony kind of nonsense that sounds like it means something, but it doesn't. And, um, just a lot more of that, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I just, I see the difference in my, in my preaching has just really changed. Do you, th- do you think that sort of formal theology and, and traditional doctrinal claims, are they still there? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, I am, a, I'm such an Orthodox Lutheran theologian, it's crazy. I mean, absolutely, I'm like, yep, I'm a total Lutheran preacher. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm very, very... Um, orthodox in that way but not because I think I should be not because like well they taught me in seminary I have to do this but because this is what I actually believe (laughs) so it makes it easy to be that well I think it's really interesting you have an emphasis on experience right that the the truths of Christianity are not these abstract claims but are things that are lived out between people and surface in relationship but you're not saying, I don't hear you saying at least, that the primary sort of like, I don't know what, um, vehicle of revelation is the way you feel in these experiences necessarily. No, 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 yeah. that's right. No, I think that's right. Because, um, I mean, I don't, I only care about ideas insofar as they help describe reality. So I think a lot of times people like to ignore reality in favor of an idea. Uh, and it, that doesn't interest me. I, I, I literally can't make myself do that. But any kind of idea that helps me understand reality, um, I'm much more drawn to. I mean, that's why I'm Lutheran. You know, I could, that's, that's exactly why I couldn't be, you know, a Unitarian or, you know, a New Age person or whatever is just because, like, they have such a high anthropology. Like, the there are certain systems that have just very a high opinion of human beings, you know, like all the good and the light is within us and we're co-creators with God, you know, the shit. And I'm like, it is dark inside my heart. I do not know where you're getting that data from. Also, I read the paper every day, right? So I see what human beings are capable of. So that to me, well, might, 
be inspiring and feel good does not describe reality. Yeah. But Luther, the Lutheran idea that we're all simultaneously sinner and saint, 100% of both all the time, that describes reality to me. This is why it's something I adhere to. Do you think that your own faith life would be different if you weren't a preacher? Yes. Yeah. 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 That is, people are like, what are your spiritual disciplines? I'm like, I'm a preacher. Literally, that's my spiritual discipline. I am so completely obsessed with finding good news for broken people, like mm. obsessed with it. That, um, that, and, and I use the lectionary. And um, so I have the text that I'm preaching on, and I start studying it on Tuesday. And I think about it obsessively. So I walk my dog, I think about it. I think about it in the shower. After I've done a pastoral care visit, I talk to my parishioner about the text. We read it together. I call friends and talk about the text. I cannot, I'm working out, I'm thinking about the text. I'm in my yoga class. I'm thinking, I mean, it's like even when I wake up in the middle of the night, to get myself to go back to sleep, I go through the text. I go through everything about the text I can remember in my head until I go back to sleep. I describe it as having a not very interesting mental illness. And so um, that is my spiritual discipline is being this like crazy person that's living in this text and going insane trying to figure out what is the good news for my pe- for me and my people from this text, I describe it as like a wrestling match between me and the text and that I take my community into this wrestling match throughout the week and I do not walk away before demanding a blessing from that text. But when I walk away, I walk away limping. Mm. Like it is not a pleasant process. It's a, this is why I cannot preach every week. I could not emotionally do it. I, I, I preach every other week because, um, well, for, First of all, because there's two clergy people in my parish, but but second of all, I I couldn't um, I couldn't do it. I like can't dr- do that ever. The limping week. and the draining aspect of it. I was thinking as you were describing this in my own life as a preacher in those places where I've preached, you know, 48 weeks a year. Yeah, there is that weird um, boundaryless feeling on a Sunday afternoon when you're done with the <laughs> wrestling, but you haven't. Mm-hmm. Fi- I, I, I don't look at who my next opponent is until Monday morning. No way. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, and I can't remember my sermons very well at all. And, oh, the other thing I wanted to say about it is that I'm, I always, this doesn't, I, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> I always think my sermon's a piece of shit. Every single week. I'm like, I should apologize to my people before I even preach this. Like, they're all just going to feel sorry for me. Like, I had a pretty good run, but clearly it's over. Like, there's this bizarre level of, like, I, this, is, this, is, this is a terrible sermon, right? Every time. Do you think you're ginning that fail. up in order to kind of get some adrenaline going? Or is that a real? Uh, God, it's so real. I mean, to where, I, like, my friends have to talk me off, like, talk me off the ledge, right? I mean, like, I... It's just, I don't know why, but it is legitimately what I experience. However, I don't even feel an ounce of it when I'm preaching. Not even, not even a shred. And I never feel it after I preached. Mm. But up until that moment, I do. 
Well, as a person who has stepped into the pulpit thinking I've got the greatest thing in the world in my hands and then watched it bomb, your method would be uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's how I mean, I, the times where I thought, well, you know, maybe this one's pretty good. Yeah, it never is. And the ones that I just, I just think are just absolute dogs. People are like crying. They love it. You know, I don't know. There's that mystery we all experience as preachers. Thank God, right? Exactly. That the Holy Spirit intervenes, you know. So you think you said you go through talk. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. You you said you go through the week wrestling with the text, searching for the good news, speaking speaking about it with the people that you're visiting, trying to find a good word for broken people. But does that mean? I think there's a way in which that can get simplified sometimes to feel like if we apply scripture to every problem. Every problem is solved. That that regardless of what the matter at hand is, there is good news to apply to it. We just need to find the good news. Um, there's something in me that pushes back against that. Um, but also, as a preacher, I feel like I need to be bringing a good word. Right? Um, I'm not there to 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 just decry. Um, how do you yeah, deal think, with that tension? I think what I think what passes for preaching in most contexts, both liberal and conservative, is some version of here's the problem and here's what you should be doing about it. Um, And I have never once in my life heard that as good news. Uh, I think that my people come in the door plenty aware of the ways that they fall short, absolutely aware of what the problems are, like really feeling that. And what they need is some good news. They don't need me to turn, you know, turn the screws. Now, I think... I, I mean, I do preach what we call law in my sermons, but it's as a way of illuminating why the gospel is the gospel, meaning it's hard to know. If you're not clear why the bad news is bad news, it's hard to know why the good news is such good news. Mm. And so it's not that there isn't a, a place for it. I mean, I can I can kind of turn the screws, but as a way of going, this is why this is good news, right? So is there anything that we haven't touched on that um, that feels important to you that you want to make sure all these good people hear? I think people in their preaching should also just like be themselves, you know, don't, don't try to be Walter Brueggemann, you know, like don't, don't try to be Barbara Brown Taylor. Like you have, everybody has enough to draw on, you know, in their own struggles and their own personality and their own heart that that I think that that ends up having so much more power, you know, yeah. and to kind of trust that. To you know, trust have, the, the sort of essence of who you are. Yeah, like you're just have your own voice, you know, and and don't quote other people all the time. <laughs> you know, like you have enough to say. You don't have to borrow, you know, Anne Lamott's authority, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like you don't like you have enough of your own. It's all in there. Do the work. Like excavate it. Um, it will have more power if it's yours. Um, I think that's true on the performative end of it too. I mean, we can learn totally. these skills. But I was talking to this young man recently who's sort of a like quirky, eccentric guy, and his congregation was responding negatively to this, and he felt like I've got a tone down mm. and my response was not at all like mm. good for you for being mm-hmm. an unusual person work mm. with that right that's what mm-hmm. you have rather right, than right, trying right, to hide right. 
because because that's I don't know. We all have these different sort of ways of being charismatic, right? And like your particularity might be important, you know. But but at the same time, I react really badly to preachers who have their like preaching persona or their like preacher voice. I mean. Everybody speaks a little bit differently when you're speaking in front of a group of people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when I feel like it's a performance of any kind, I just – I stop listening. Like Mm. I want it to really feel like it's that person saying those things, not them performing a version of what preacher is supposed to sound like. You know? So for you, is there a sense of like when you step into the pulpit, the person who you are – on a Tuesday afternoon, as opposed to who you are in the pulpit, is there a more performative dimension to the way you're carrying yourself to? Um, only slightly. I mean, only because like there's a cadence, there's a way of, uh, and I always preach from a manuscript, you know, like I, I cannot be trusted to do anything else. <laughs> like I just don't, that would not feel safe to my congregation. It would not feel safe for my congregation for me to uh, just start talking. But um, I was talking to this guy a few weeks ago named Roger Nelson, who's a really funny guy. And he said, yeah, this, this the spirit might move through me and nobody wants to hear what it's going to dredge up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. I, that just feels dangerous. Um, but I write my manuscripts in a spoken style. I mean, to to the point to where I put I put things like like in it, you know, in a sentence. Or I mean, it's very much written in a spoken style. You can read them online and see, and you can listen to them and go, oh, this, she's saying almost exactly what's on the page, but it doesn't sound like she's reading something, you know. So there's a cadence to it, there and, and things like that, but. But it, it's not a different personality, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's not a different personality. And there's something powerful, I think, about hearing preaching from somebody who has the wrong personality for the work. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think to come full circle, that, that's what my parishioners are saying when they're like, um, you know, we like that we have a preacher who's preaching to herself and letting us overhear it. Well, there's something very Lutheran about that, right? Like the yeah, point is totally. not how good you are. The point is exactly. how good exactly. the God that you're pointing toward is. Yeah, and boy, when there's such a good, huge contrast between the two, it can be really effective. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, let's be honest, all I have to offer. <laughs> well, Nadia, this has been a real pleasure. I anticipated that it would be fun to speak with you, and it, it yeah. sure has been. This hour has oh, flown thanks. by. Yeah, it was really fun for me, too. I mean, I could talk for another hour, for sure. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>